Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, there is great hope in the truth that we have just sung, that your words are words of power and that they never fail. That your word always accomplishes the purpose for which you have sent it. Father, today we know that as we look to your word, we are reading the living, active word of God. That these are not the opinions of men. They are not just some sort of book that we look to as a foundation for our religious experience. But Father, it is is your very voice speaking to us. Father, may we listen by your Spirit's enabling to your voice today through your word. Father, may your spirit take your word and move past it being just simply words on a page. But, Father, may it become for us the bread of life, the very sustenance upon which we depend to live our lives before you. Lord, everything about your Son is given to us in this word. And everything that your Son teaches us is all that we need for life and godliness through knowing Him. So, Father, today, quiet our hearts. Take our minds from the attentions of this past week, the concerns of the upcoming week. And, Lord, may we just feast upon the banquet of truth that You have provided for us today. Thank You that You have spoken in Your Word. Work within us today. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading His blood. Amen. You take your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 7 through, I'm sorry, verses 8 through 14 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm sorry, it's it's not verses 8 through 14, it's verses 8 through something else. Hold on a second. Don't you love it when you open up your Bible and didn't open to where you thought it opened? So, uh, verses 8 through 17, that's right. I knew 14 didn't sound right when I looked at it. Um, I've seen uh, a video. I don't know where this video comes from. I don't know I don't know what it's a part of. I think it's a part of some movie. I'm not suggesting the movie. I've never seen the movie that this, that this little snippet I've seen is a part of. But um, it was something I saw online. And it's a video of a family sitting on a balcony at a ski resort enjoying lunch or dinner for that day. And as they're sitting there, you can see the beautiful mountains in the backdrop. And then all of a sudden, you see this avalanche begun, begin to come down the mountain. And, you know, the wife, very concerned about this wall of snow that's coming to them, looks to the husband and says, should should we get up and go? And he's like, oh, no, this is one of those controlled avalanches. They know what they're doing. He sort of brushes it off as not a big deal. But as the wall grows closer, 
the mother and the children begin to get a little bit more desperate. They begin to, to, to get upset and say, maybe we should get up. And he's like, oh, no, it's, it's okay. Everything will be fine. And he even comments on how powerful the avalanche is as it's coming towards them. And then finally, as the mist from the snow's leading edge begins to enter the balcony and you begin to see things graying out, the father gets up, everyone starts screaming, everyone around them, he picks up his son, and you think that he's going to take his son and run off with him. He picks up his son, puts him beside himself, and then heads off his own way, leaving his family behind. Now, I think it was played for comedic um, whatever it was in a foreign language so i don't know it was in french i think so i don't know if french people have a weird sense of humor or whatever i don't know but um what happened there we saw is this building tension that eventually when things got to the point where there was real danger what did who did that father look out for first himself how often is that not the case with ourselves How often when we are faced with difficulty, we often have a self-centered desire to retreat, to flee, and to seek our own preservation, sometimes at the expense of other people. It's fine for us to come together as a family of believers, to, to listen to the difficulties that other believers are facing, and, and then, you know, to sort of commiserate with them and then sort of move about our day as long as things are going okay. And, and even when we see difficulty off in the distance, we can still stick around and, and you know, it's, it, we can be very resolved and say, oh, God will get us through this and that type of thing. But when the trial, when the difficulty is right in our face, Oftentimes, we retreat to looking to ourselves alone. Peter is going to challenge us as pilgrims to have a completely different mindset in the way that we walk on this earth, on the way that we walk the path of a pilgrim. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. 
having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's interesting, in this passage, Peter points to a number of different things, and and at times, we would think that these are negative things. But Peter is actually calling us to recognize that this path that he's described in these verses is the path of the blessed pilgrim. So the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at the blessed pilgrim. What does it mean to be blessed? What does that look like on an everyday basis? What, what type of attitudes does that foster among God's people? We're going to see three main things throughout this passage of blessing that God gives us. We're going to see today the blessing of the spiritual family that God has given us. Next week, and perhaps the week after that, we'll, then we'll also look at the blessing of being a blessing and the blessing, finally, of persecution. But this morning, we're going to look at the blessing of a spiritual family. And we're going to be mainly focusing on verse 8 this morning. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, Peter is calling us as pilgrims to look for blessings along our journey. And and this is a wonderful thing. He's already described how there's going to be difficulty, how there's going to be adversity that we face as we walk the pilgrim pathway that God has given us. But he doesn't call us to walk this in some sort of stoic sense or in some sort of sadistic sense where it's all suffering, it's all difficulty, that there's nothing positive in this. There are a multitude of blessings that God gives us as we walk the pilgrim pathway. And particularly as Peter is writing to believers that are together in fellowship, that are a part of a church, those believers are finding among themselves a great source of blessing. And so this is what Peter turns to when we see in verse 8 as he uses the term finally. Now, what he's doing with that word finally is he's connecting everything he's been saying up through, uh, up through um, this point up to chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 13. So from chapter 2, verse 13 to what we see in verse, what, what we see up through verse 17, it's sort of the ending of this whole section that Peter is talking about. He's not saying this is the end of the book. So, sorry, we still have a lot more to go through here. Um, and you'll see that there's still several more chapters. But what he's doing is he's saying, this is the final thing I'm going to say about the main point I was saying before. And what he was speaking of before was how Christ becomes an example for us. We've been called to follow Christ because he's left an example for us. So what does that look like? And he then went into describing how that affects the relationships between husbands and wives. And we saw the the call of submission given to wives and the, the call of living in an understanding way given to husbands. And so now he sort of backs out and we see that in what he says in the next phrase, all of you, his instructions are now regarding everyone in the church. And while those those instructions he gives to the nuclear family are important, Christ-likeness is to be given and seen among God's people. 
that this call to follow Christ's example is lived out in the home, but also in the spiritual family. We're not simply to view other believers as acquaintances or friends, but rather the message of the entire New Testament is that your other members of Christ, the fellow believers that you know, that you're in communion with in a local body, they are your what? Family. The terminology in Scripture is is all over the place. Many of the letters are written and they're addressed to brothers or kindred, brothers and sisters. God is often called our Father. In fact, one commentator made the point that Father is the Christian name for God. Our elder brother is Jesus Christ Himself, and we are bound together by the work of the Spirit and the salvation worked within us so that we all should consider each other family. We're siblings, brothers and sisters, and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And so Peter now provides some specific outlooks for what that looks like. What does it mean then? How does, how does that look in the body of Christ? What does it mean to live as a family in the body of Christ? And he gives us five specific instructions. We see this here in verse 8. Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, the the word have is sort of a verb that we think of, and and that verb is actually not in the original language. So what, and all these words that are used here to describe these five different uh, virtues, they are actually adjectives. So in many ways, what, what Peter is saying is, this is what it means, this is what a Christian looks like. These are describing who pilgrims are. And what we're going to see in particular is beginning with this first blessing is the blessing of a loving spiritual family. Now, why am I focusing on love here? Well, it has to do with the way in which Peter has structured this passage. There's, a, there's what we call a chiastic structure here. So if you've Some of you in Sunday school years ago, I had gone through Hebrew poetry and talked about how Hebrew poetry uses parallelism. And so, for instance, when we when when we uh, when we rhyme things or use poetry, the the sounds were rhyme. So um, chewing gum is really gross. Chewing gum, I hate the most. All right. That's that's what we think of. But in Hebrew, it was more of an idea of thought rhyming or parallelism. And oftentimes, these, paral- these parallel structures would form what we call a chiasm. And that comes from the Greek word X. And in the X, what joins two things together in the X? The center. And so what we find here is that Peter uses that very common Hebrew parallelistic structure to create a point about what it means to be or to have love in the family particularly the the spiritual family. So he begins with these two things, and and what you're going to see is instead of them going one by one consecutively, the beginning and the end match together. Unity of mind and a humble mind. And then we see that, well, if you follow this structure, sympathy is going to line up with what? A tender heart. And then 
So these things, sympathy, unity of mind, tender heart, humble mind, the key to having them all is to have what? And what's the one thing that's left? Brotherly love. Brotherly love becomes the key that unlocks the door to having these other virtues there. If you do not have brotherly love, you will not be able to have these other virtues in place. That is what Peter is pointing us to here. Now, this word that's used here for brotherly love, it's a word that particularly for Pennsylvanians we're very familiar with because it's the word Philadelphia, right? And we have a city in this great state of ours, Philadelphia, um, known as the city of what? Brotherly love. Now, that's the dictionary definition. I haven't been to Philadelphia in a long time, but I know some people that lived out there, and I don't know that it quite matches the description. But nonetheless, that is what Peter is calling us to, to brotherly love. Now, think about the law that's given by God, and the law can be summed up in two commandments. The first commandment is to love who? God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is similar to it or like unto it, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. Peter is stressing, and I think we do well to stress, the importance of brotherly love that believers must have for each other. Now, how does this work out? How do we see this? Well, I think the first thing we have to recognize is you have to be in fellowship with other believers to show them brotherly love. That's why the Scriptures implore and speak about the importance of gathering together with God's people. If you don't do that, you're not able to either receive the actions of brotherly love from your family, or you're also not able then to also give or to display that love to your spiritual family. Now, this is going to become immensely important because, as we just read, Peter's going to talk about how there are people who are going to want to harm us. There are people who are going to persecute the church, who are going to go against the church, who are going to drag the church into jail, drag the church before judges, kill individuals in the church. There's going to be a lot of hatred from the world. In fact, the world hated Jesus. What are they going to do to us? Hate us. So is the pilgrim's life then a life of enduring nothing but constant hatred. And Peter is saying, no, it's not. Where can we go for love and affection and kindness? Where do we find that as God's people? We find it in the church, in our spiritual family. As we walk this pilgrim journey, we do not walk it alone. We have the presence of our Savior who continues with us always, and we have the love of our spiritual family that has bound us together by God's grace through our faith in Christ and the ministry of the Spirit. Peter is calling us to recognize that when we come together, we're brothers and sisters who are seeking to love each other. So the question that's faced before us as we see this, because what, what is Peter saying? He's assuming that this is what a Christian look like, looks like. 
So let me ask you, do you have brotherly love for your brothers and sisters in Christ? In this congregation, are you showing that you are a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, a true pilgrim, by supporting, by praying for, by listening to, by talking with your spiritual family? You know, we are afforded glorious gifts of God's grace. They are more than the sands of the sea. They are more than can ever be recounted in our lives. God has blessed us with so much. He's also blessed us with each other. And you say, well, yeah, I know some of the people in this church, and I don't know that they're quite that much of a blessing. They are. God's grace is at work transforming us from those who live for self to those who live for others. So gather regularly. You, you, you know, we live in a world that's tiring, isn't it? Do you come to the end of your week on Friday and you're just exhausted? You've had to deal with the effects of the curse. I, you know, it always, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was taking a, 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 uh, a bunch of boxes out to the curb. And this one box was sort of unwieldy, and I had to, to cut it up and, and turn it out, and, and I was carrying it. And I swear it got stuck on every little nook and cranny in the ground, every bush that I went by. I mean, I, you know, I'm, my neighbors are probably like, what is he doing over there? Because I'm like, ah, ah, I'm just wrestling with this box. Why does that happen? The curse. I mean, have you ever wondered, like, why do things just not work like they're supposed to? Briars and thorns. And that tires us, doesn't it? Then, then we're living in a world that is filled with wickedness. It's, it's everywhere. Your coworkers. You know, probably on an any given day, you probably hear the Lord's name drug through the dirt all the time. You see evil choices of co-workers or even friends that you have and, and the effects that those bring. And then there's your own sin where you are the one who's dragging your Lord's name through the dirt by your actions or by your words. Each week is a battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. There are people in this world who hate you because you know Jesus Christ. And when you come to the end of the week and you come to Friday, it's no wonder we're exhausted. Where can we go for loving support, for refuge, for strength, for encouragement, to hear the Word of God spoken to us. Where can we go among God's people? This is why the assembly of God's people together on a regular basis is vital. Because there we're able to experience not the hatred of the world, not the draining effects of the curse or of sin, but there we are able to experience the love of others who love Jesus Christ. Are you seeking to show that brotherly love? 
in this congregation. It's a blessing. It is a blessing to come and to be among God's people. I was glad when they said to me, let us enter the house of the Lord. And the house of the Lord is not this building. Where does God dwell? In His people. Among His people. So we have this blessing of a spiritual family. But now we see Peter goes deeper than just the brotherly love. What does brotherly love look like? And that's where we see these other four virtues, or I'm taking them and taking them together as the, as the parallel units they are, and we're going to see two other things that the spiritual family brings us. And the first is the blessing of like-mindedness, or the blessing of a like-minded family. This is the first thing that Peter points to. Finally, all of you have or be Christians, be pilgrims who have a unity of mind. He uses a word here, it's just one word in the Greek, that speaks of unity in spirit and of harmony. In fact, there are numerous passages in Scripture that call the church to be united. In fact, it is, it is a, a, a sterling display of God's grace when people from different backgrounds, from different, having different opinions and different viewpoints, come together and find unity. We see this in Romans 15, 5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to what? Live in harmony with one another. In such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, what are we to do? Welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, there's a lot here to unpack, and I'm not here to preach Romans 15, 5 through 7 for you. But what we do see is, at the very beginning, I just want to point out, how does this happen? It happens only by God's strength. God is the one who has to grant us the ability to live in harmony with one another. And if we're not living in harmony with one another, then we're not able to fulfill the very thing for which we are created, glorifying God. Because when we're living in harmony with one another, we are able to do that, to lift with one voice praise and worship and glory to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this means then that this unity of mind means that we're welcoming people with The same welcome that Christ himself has done for us. Now, we are of such nature that we want to hold on to hurts. We want to hold on to things that people have done or said that that have offended us. But unity in the body of Christ says, I'm going to welcome you in the same way that Christ has welcomed me. Did Christ allow the offenses that we have done against Him to keep us from Him. He bridged them by His grace. And so that's what we've been called to do with each other. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth, man, it was messed up. All right, There was, there was not unity there. 
people were bragging about who baptized them. I, am, I was baptized by, by Apollos, or I was, I was baptized by uh, so-and-so, by, by Peter, or, or I was baptized by Paul. And some people just said, yeah, well, you know what? I'm just a follower of Jesus. I mean, that, that, that was what was going on, and you had these factions growing up in the church. And so Paul says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you what? Agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but instead of divisions, that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Unity requires us to cast off quarreling and to seek agreement with other believers. We see in 2 Corinthians, so so the first letter, they didn't get it. So 2 Corinthians, he says it again. Look, brothers, rejoice Aim for what? Restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And as we live in peace, who is with us? The God of love and peace. Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. We have this passage about Euodia and Synecdoche, or some people have said odious and stinky. Right? I thought those were appropriate names. You have these two women who are not agreeing in the church there in Philippi. Shocker, right? That you'd have, you'd have people not agreeing together in the church. What does Paul say? I entreat Euodia, I entreat Synecdoche, stop the division, but rather what? Agree in the Lord. And then he speaks to his true companion, and there's all sorts of opinions and theories about who that true companion is. Um, It may be he's just referring to the entire body of Christ as one, the true companion of Paul, the whole church. Help these women. Help them come together in unity. Because these women were women who labored side by side with Paul in the gospel. This is a warning to us that no matter what we've accomplished in the past for Christ, discord and disagreement and disunity can easily wedge its way into the body of Christ. And then, of course, we have Philippians chapter 2. And Paul makes it a really interesting point here. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So in other words, he's saying if the gospel should result in anything, what should it be? Complete my joy by what? Being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, Does the Bible want believers in a body to be unified together? Yes, (laughs) obvious. Here's my question. When you think of churches, do you typically think of them as places where there is a lot of unity? Now, I'm thankful that this church, this body, continues to have and show that type of unity, and I praise the Lord for that. But unfortunately, so often the church is described as a place where there is nothing but conflict. Maybe you've been in churches that that's all there has been is conflict, disagreements, arguing, quarrels. 
See, unfortunately, the church is known not by its unity, but by its disunity. So, why is this? Why do we not have this happening in our lives? Well, I think Peter, if we look at our passage, I think he points to two things. Or I think the scriptures point to two things. And the first thing, I think, is lack of faith. And particularly what we looked at in the Romans passage. Who is it that grants unity to the body of Christ? God. God is the one who grants this unity. He is the one who produces this by His strength. And is anyone more powerful or does anyone have more power than God? No. So do we have sufficient resources given to us by God to be unified? Yes. So it's not from a lack of resources. It's from a lack of using those resources or trusting what God has said He's going to do. They remind us that our unity among believers is not accomplished through dependence upon our own efforts, but dependence upon our God. We must believe that what God says is true and then set out to show that to be the case. See, what often may happen is we'll look to structures, we'll look to programs, we'll, we'll look to to ideas that we have that bring us together in unity. So like, okay, everyone's upset at the church. Let's feed them. And then they'll be so full of fried chicken and ham at the church potluck that they'll be just in this sort of haze and they'll all get along. Like so, so we can look to those type of things. Or we'll look to, to, to try to have activities for everybody. Now look, is there anything wrong with a, with a meal, especially with ham? No! There's nothing wrong with those type of things. But if we depend upon them, if we look to them as the pathway to unity, we're no different than a social club. We're no different than a community center. We are different than those things. But when we look to those as the things that bind us, those things as the things that bind us together, they are not their tools. But God's power is the thing we must depend upon to bring us together in unity. And see, here's the thing, that that when God's power is at work in that way, it is a clear indication to the world around us that something different is happening. Because even in the social um, networks that we have in our society, even in the social clubs that we have, they're still filled with strife. You ever been to a PTA meeting? You ever been to a town hall? Nobody can get along. So when you have a body of believers that is getting along, what's going on there? It shows the world that there's something different about those who are united together in Jesus Christ. But So lack of faith, I think, is one of the main reasons why we struggle with this. And then secondly... I really believe it's lack of humility. And this is where Peter brings in the last point. Remember, they're connected together as a, as a single thought. Unity of mind comes through having what type of mind at the end of verse 8? A what? Humble mind. See, our faith in God has a clear effect on us. The more we depend on Him, the more we are aware of our own weakness. 
This is what Paul said. He said, look, I, I don't want my power to be the thing that I depend upon because in my weakness, that's when God's strength is made complete. And so the more we depend upon God, the more we have faith in God, the less we think about ourselves, the less we think of what we're able to do. And so this is what Peter is calling us to, have a humble mind. It is impossible for there to be humility, or there is impossible for there to be unity in the church without humility. There can be no harmony in the spiritual family apart from humility. Now, what is humility? Well, it is thinking that I am truly no one. It's considering others better than myself. And in fact, who is the greatest example of humility? Christ. And this is exactly what Paul says in Philippians 2. We're not to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but rather in humility we count who? Others more significant than ourselves. We're not looking to our own interests, but we're looking also to the interests of others. See, division comes in when we don't count other people better than ourselves, when we seek our way rather than others' way. My idea wasn't used, or, or I wasn't getting the recognition for what I did. And, if, and that is all about looking at and pointing to who? Me. As long as that selfish ambition and conceit exists in a church, there will be no unity. That's why Peter says, unity of mind comes through humility of mind. Well, what does that mind look like? Well, what does Paul say in verse 5? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what did Jesus do? And we know the rest of the passage who being in the form of God, right? If there was anybody who had the, the right, if you will, to be conceited because of who he was, it was Jesus Christ. But he didn't consider his equality with God something to grasp, but he let go of it. And he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. Now that is amazing humility, is it not? But is Jesus done? He humbled himself even more and became obedient to what? Death. And that death was not a quiet, peaceful death. It was a violent execution on a cross. So how do we have like-mindedness we have to have a humble mind. We have to recognize that we are no one and that Christ is everything. And to live our lives in that reality, that is the only way we find unity in this world. But not only do we have the blessing of a like-minded spiritual family, but then finally we see the blessing of a tender-hearted spiritual family. 
We see this with the, the middle parallel statements. Sympathy and a tender heart. The, this begins, this idea of brotherly love, driving us to have unity of mind and humility. It brings about tender-heartedness. And it begins with sympathy. So, it was interesting. I, lo- I love it sometimes when this happens. So I'm looking, going through the original languages, and I'm like, oh, what word for sympathy is used here in the Greek? And so I look it up, and, and guess how you pronounce the word sympathy here in the Greek? Sympathy. <laughs> so this is the very word we get our English word sympathy from. Now it means literally to accompany someone in their passions. It's a combination of two words, and one of those words being pathos. Pathos refers to emotions. It's more than just feeling for someone. Um, I think it can be easy for us to get caught up in feeling for someone and think that that's enough. You know, you see, you know, you see, you know, a commercial about you know someone suffering in Africa because they don't have water, or you watch one of those ASPCA commercials that has animals in the most pitiful states, and you just you feel for them. And Sarah McLaughlin is singing in the background, in the arms of the angel. And so, you know, you feel bad, and then you sort of go about your day, and like, it's no big deal. That's not what this type of sympathy is. It means to feel with. It's more than platitudes, more than just saying, as they'd like to say down south, oh, bless your heart. Rather, it's a sincere desire to enter another person's emotional state, which is often a state of suffering, and to sympathize with them. I think of how Job's friends did this initially. Everything had been lost. He's sitting in the ashes of what was his life, scraping his body with glass, and his friends came, and they just sat with him. They mourned with him. They entered into his situation and sought to sympathize with him. This is what we've been called to do as believers, to be sympathetic to others, to enter into their suffering and to feel as as much as possible, to feel as deeply as they feel about what they're suffering to let it be known that what they're going through as a part of the body of Christ affects us as we are united to them in Christ. When one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. That's the idea here. I think this is where we can find that the difficulties that we have experienced in life before have the opportunity for us to help others. This is one reason why the Bible speaks about elders and speaks about um, older women helping younger women. You know, when you're 22 or 23, you know, you've got it all figured out, right? And when you get to be 50, 60, 70, You've experienced so much 
that you can teach others to help them realize that when they face a similar circumstance like what you have faced, you can minister to them. That in fact, it may very well be that God's purpose in leading you through that difficulty was so that you could help someone in that difficulty that they're facing. So that you can sympathize with them. Of course, the great example, as Christ is our example in all these things, is Christ. Because we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who was in how many respects? Every respect. Tempted as we are, yet without sin. So when we have that type of hope in a Savior, what do we do? Let us then draw near. The the body of Christ is about drawing near to Christ, but also to each other as we sympathize so that we can do what Paul calls the church to do in Ephesians 4.29, to not let corrupting talk come out of our mouth, but only such as is good for what? Building up so that we can give grace to those who hear. So it begins with sympathy. But where does that sympathy come from? It's not just something we do as an act. We don't put on a show. Rather, it comes from a tender heart. Sympathy is driven by a tender heart. The human heart in Scripture is generally described in one of two ways. Malleable and soft or hard. Now, how, what, what are our hearts apart from God's grace? Are they soft or are they hard? Hard. And we see that in the world around us, right? People are cold-hearted, calculated. That's not how it should be among God's people. But God's grace is such that it takes cold, dead hearts that are cold towards Him, and He changes them to be soft. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that as a result of having a changed heart, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you may live. The new covenant is about God taking away or using His word that is like a hammer, that breaks rocks in pieces and bringing about a new heart within us, a new spirit. God, what does He do in the new covenant with that old, cold, hard heart of stone? He removes it. And He puts within there a heart of flesh and gives us a heart of flesh. And He gives us His spirit. To cause us to walk in His statutes, to be careful to obey His rules, to dwell in the land that He gave. I mean, this softness of heart, we often think of it as referring to our relationship with God. And it primarily does. But you know what our tender hearts also deal with? Our relationship with each other. That in the church, our hearts are softened so that we can sympathize with others. I mean, a hard heart hears of what somebody is dealing with, and they, they say, oh, I feel bad for them. 
But then they go about their lives and they think to themselves, boy, am I glad I'm not dealing with that. A softened heart says, let me come and mourn with you. Let me come and help you. Let me come and come and strengthen you and come alongside. So what does it look like to be driven by a tender heart? Well, Paul, I think, gives it to us in Ephesians 4.32. We are kind to one another. We're tender-hearted. And we forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. This tender heart that is produced by the brotherly love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ, it brings us to a place where we can forgive others who have harmed us. What a blessing it is to have this type of spiritual family, is it not? There, you, you can find here things that you can't find anywhere else in this world. Among God's people, you find love, you find unity, you find humility, you find compassion, you find sympathy, you find tender-heartedness. So as you go about this week, and you experience the difficulties of life, as you, as you wrestle with suffering, as you deal with the effects of the curse. Look forward to the time when you can come together with your brothers and sisters and come in a loving, spiritual family. May we, by God's grace, seek to live out all of these virtues as God works in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. Lord, take it, mold us, shape us to be more like your son. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his word.